Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Fair shake of a sauce bottle, mate. G'day there and welcome to Democracy Sausage, which comes each week from the studio of the Australian National University. And it's a great pleasure to welcome, as always, with me, Dr. Maria Teflaga, Senior Lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations and Director of the Centre for the Study of Australian Politics. Hi there, Maria. Hello, Mark. How are you? Terrific. Uh, we're only a few days now away from this fairly momentous referendum vote. We've spoken a lot about it over the last 18 months or so, a bit longer. And I guess now, at the moment, things aren't looking as optimistic for those hoping for a, a change here uh, than, uh, than they did some time ago because we've been sort of besieged with polls. Yes, that's right. Um, and I suppose the, the most important thing about the nature of the polls is the sort of general sort of trend um, or average yeah. of, of all of those polls. And there was another one out from the um, Sydney Morning Herald, or the Nine Stable, I suppose, is what we call it now, with a significantly larger sample size. Though, frustratingly, that poll was not very transparent about the actual subsamples, mm. which was also sort of showed that, yes, has had a slight uptick, but not enough at the moment to to see a, a successful outcome. Yes. I mean, I take some comfort from the fact, as it was indicated to me from one pollster, that pollsters aren't completely as confident as they might be even during election periods or on other issues, that they are able to measure this as well as normal. It is, it is you know, there are, there are sort of technical surveying problems associated with it, particularly the younger people get and and um, uh, you know the methods that, that are used for gathering opinions, but also just the high levels of uncertainty in the electorate. There's still people, amazingly, who haven't really engaged yeah. with it. So, And one of the things that is actually interesting is that you do actually see quite different results depending on the type of question asked. Yeah. And um, if you present people with the actual wording on the ballot, uh, you tend to see a greater amount of support. And, and I guess that's sort of, yes, what you were sort of saying about whether or not you're, that people are really capturing young people is is one of the things I was kind of complaining about, the nature of the yeah. the subsample. Like, you know, well, how many young people, how many old people are in the sample? So therefore, like, how's that affecting the potential weighting? So it could be the case that it's not a very good sample for, you know, one demographic, so they basically extrapolate from the sample that they have. However, you know, we're talking about a, a sample of nearly 5,000. It, it, it should theoretically 
mean that they have probably done a better job. That it's But you can have systematic yeah. bias in a sample of a million, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can. And you can have aggregated polling problems as we saw in 2019, for example, uh, where the trend of all of the polls showed uh, a, a pretty clear Labor win and there wasn't a Labor win at all in that 2019 election and that brought about well, some yes. changes, some some. That's right, that's right. Reforms. But, I mean, I look, I mean, I do think that we kind of have seen enough polling companies change their methods um, for contacting voters and enough of them are like much more transparent than Resolve, for example, um, about what they're actually doing that I, I, do, I don't, I, I would be surprised if we sort of saw a similar polling fail that we saw in 2019. However... Or, or in Brexit or in, uh, well, not yeah, so yes, much in the, the, in the US. But half the job is just working out which of these people is actually going to turn out. You're going to vote, yeah, in those you know, places, And that's yeah. one of the things that introduces a great deal of noise. But, you know, yeah. but I'm actually not a public opinion scholar and I'm sure I will receive emails oh, for yes, the um, things yes. I have said today yeah. from my esteemed colleagues in the academy. Yeah, but, I know. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and, of course, the other issue, uh, we'll get to our guests in just a moment, but oh. the other issue is, which is always a concern, I think, uh, and even a concern, in fact, for lots of voters when you talk to them, is the extent to which polling itself, the advent of polling as news stories, have an effect on the uh, ultimate result, you know, the way they influence public opinion. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, like, I think actually the, the exercise we've just engaged in was, is actually probably not very helpful, right? Like, you're talking down the result, there'll be people out there who might be swayed by that, um, or it might mean that fewer volunteers go out to door knock because it's you know, they might feel it's not worth their while. So I just don't think that's true of democracy sausage listeners, though. I think they're more no, engaged, no, no, you know, I think, civically I think, I think active they, citizens. You know, and you should participate in, in the um, and in the efforts of full disclosure. Um, you know, I I've been doing that. I I did a pre poll um, yesterday um, so in, how to in, vote in Monero. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, giving out how to vote cards um, and and so on and so forth. And I'll I'll be doing that again. Well, two people who've been doing a power of work in campaigning and doing so really against the the, the consensus, indeed the official position of uh, the opposition, are members of the opposition, one of whom actually surrendered uh, his uh, his position as uh, Shadow Minister for Indigenous Affairs, that being Julian Lisa, the member for Barawa. Uh, he is with us, as is Bridget Archer, the member for Bass, uh, who is also um, uh, known for having uh, taken a, a number of positions uh, against her party over a period of time, standing on matters of principle and representing in a very energetic way her electors in that Tasmanian seat of Bass. And I'm very, very proud to have both of them joining us on Democracy Sausage. Welcome to you both. Hello, Mark. Wonderful to be here. So... You would have been listening to what we were just saying then, uh, Julian. I wonder if we could start really uh, at first principles. You're in a very good position, I think, just to give us a, a kind of a thumbnail sketch of where this came from, this proposition for The Voice. Um, you've been involved with this issue uh, and uh, with, with Indigenous policy for a great deal of time. You have uh, outstanding um Sort of um, merit in this in this debate, and I wonder if you could just give us, a, as I say, a bit of a thumbnail sketch of where, of from whence this proposition came. This proposition came from Aboriginal people themselves. It started with uh, William Cooper almost a century ago petitioning the King for the recognition of his people in the Constitution. In more recent times, um, John Howard in 1999 and 2007 put the issue of constitutional recognition on the table, and in 1999. 
people forget now, but the same day we voted on a republic, uh, we voted on a preamble to the constitution that also included um, Indigenous recognition among a number of other things. Uh, and then there were a series of uh, uh, committees that were established, an expert panel, a referendum council, to consult with Indigenous people about um, uh, what they wanted from constitutional recognition. My own entry into this debate, um, I go back to the Constitutional Convention before the Republic referendum, where I moved a motion that uh, we have a second question at the same time as the Republic um, looking at Indigenous recognition. But in more recent times, it goes uh, to some conversations that uh, Noel Pearson and uh, Megan Davis and Marcia Langton had with myself and other constitutional conservatives like Greg Craven and Toomey, Damien Freeman and others, trying to work out a way in which we could thread the needle and find a proposition that Indigenous Australians and constitutional conservatives could coalesce around in order to give this proposition the best chance of support. Uh, and uh, from those discussions um, came this idea of an advisory body called, uh, called The Voice. Um, it was a rejection of a symbolic only recognition of Indigenous people. It was a rejection of a judicial veto through what was known as a racial non-discrimination clause. And then a whole suite of ideas were taken to Indigenous people as part of the process of the Referendum Council, where Indigenous people really for the first time were deeply consulted about what they wanted from constitutional recognition. And overwhelmingly, they said they wanted recognition in the form of a voice. And Indigenous people got together after this sort of deep process of consultation at Uluru and resolved that uh, when it came to constitutional recognition, they wanted recognition through a voice, uh, through a committee effectively, to provide advice to the parliament, to ministers, to public servants about the policies and laws that affect Indigenous people in order to help us close the gap in some of those key areas like education, employment, healthcare and housing. And of course, in the Uluru Statement, they mention the terrible incarceration rates of Indigenous people. So it's really all about this is a wonderful country that we live in. As we all know, Australia, you know, in any social and economic indicator, performs at the very top of the world. And yet we have this gap in the performance of Indigenous Australians um, compared to the rest of us that just it doesn't matter who's in government, it doesn't matter how much money is applied to the problem, it doesn't matter what level of goodwill. There's a structural element here. Uh, that uh, prevents the gap from closing. And that structural element is a failure to properly and systemically listen to Indigenous people before we make policy that affects them. That's all this is about. How Can I ask you this, and, and, and I, I might get both of your impressions on this, but how difficult, because I think what you've just said that is extremely clear and makes you know, eminent sense, right? But to a lot of people, there's, it's almost like there are two elements to this, two hemispheres that don't need to be joined. These are people who are unconvinced um, so far, right? And that is they understand the idea of recognition, which is officially what the your, your party's position is, uh, that Peter Dutton has declared, hence this idea of a future referendum which I, about which I remain profoundly unconvinced. Um, and... Uh, and then on the other side, there's this question of the voice, and uh, it's a fairly common message. I'd be interested in your views about whether that has made it hard to communicate. What are you hearing from? You're both members of the House of Representatives. What are you hearing from voters when you are out there campaigning? Particularly given that you know your constituents, you, you um, the majority of them are supporters of the coalition, or you wouldn't be in Parliament. Look, I think it's um, it's a reasonable 
question and one that I think Julian and I have spent a lot of time responding to. I think there is broad support for that symbolic recognition, uh, the constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians. But what um, Indigenous Australians have asked for is the practical measures that will sit alongside the symbolic. Now, the symbolism is important. You know, we have all manner of um, symbolic things in our lives and um, and they're meaningful, things like flags and, and other things. They're Marriage. symbolic. Um, marriage, yeah, but but they're meaningful, so that that is important. But what Julian has just said is um, about the practical considerations that are going to actually change the lives of uh, First Nations people, and that is an equity argument. I think you know people will say, "Well, we're all equal." Um, well, we we sort of are all equal, but there's an inequity um, that exists between um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians that Julian has just articulated. And what the voice does is seek to, um, and is what has been asked uh, directly by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, is to address that inequity um, that leads to those terrible outcomes that don't seem to close. Let me add to to what Bridget said, all of which I agree with. And that is, what is the point of recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Constitution in a way that they don't wish to be recognised? I mean, there seems to be absolutely no point because you won't get Indigenous support and that seems to me to be a precondition for any successful referendum. Nor do I think that a purely symbolic referendum uh, will necessarily carry the day. John Howard in 1999 put up a purely symbolic uh, proposal and that was voted against by more than 60% of Australians. Uh, there is, in my view, no guarantee that a purely symbolic referendum will get up. This yeah, is actually no, accordance right. with the wishes of Indigenous people, and that's what's important here too. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point. Sorry, just quickly on that, Maria. The um, uh, Julian's point about the 60% uh, uh, opposition to it in 1999. In 1999, for example, all jurisdictions, as I understand it, uh, voted against it. That including the ACT, which is, you know... No, the ACT voted... Uh, oh, sorry, on the preamble, yes, the ACT... Yeah, on the preamble, the ACT yeah. voted for the Republic but yeah. did not get to the 50% uh, on the on the question of the preamble. So this, not that long ago, was litigated in the in, in public and uh, it didn't get much support. Yeah, I think in part it reflects the sort of um, process that, that underwrit that uh, preamble proposal. Um, and it sort of goes to what Julian and um, Bridget were just sort of saying about essentially listening to Indigenous people versus telling them this is what you're getting. Um, so one of, the, one of the things that I, I, I'd be really interested in your perspective perspectives on uh, both of you is one of the arguments that I hear a great deal, uh, particularly in my um, sort of community, my family's from from Eastern Europe, is this, uh, you know, this great feeling of grievance amongst migrants who have basically done blue collar hard jobs for their whole lives and pay taxes and so on, is this idea that through this voice that Indigenous people will get special rights. Now, I know both of you are on the conservative side of politics. I know, Julian, you have described yourself as a as a constitutional conservative. You just did. So can, can we actually unpack why this is a misplaced fear? I think there's two points. The first is that um, Since Federation, there has been a power to make laws, uh, special laws, about the people of any race for whom it's deemed necessary to make special laws. And in 1967, we had a 
uh, a referendum because originally Aboriginal people were carved out of that provision. But in 1967, we had a referendum where 90% of Australians voted in favour of changing the constitution to let us make laws about Aboriginal people. Since Federation, they are the only people that we've ever made special laws for. We don't make laws for Greek Australians or Italian Australians or Chinese Australians or Indian Australians or Jewish Australians or Christian Australians or Hindu Australians. But we do make laws for Indigenous Australians. They're the only people we've made special laws for. And the fruit of those laws is the gap that doesn't close. And so that's why it's important to have this particular body. It's also a recognition that um, Indigenous people are our first people. I mean, everybody seems to be, at least in public, saying they support that idea. So they do have a, a slightly different status to the status of other people. I think the, the other thing to say in relation to migrants who've come to Australia um, who bring enormous social capital from where they've come from. They often come here, highly educated people uh, from other places, uh, and sometimes they, they, do, they do difficult jobs here that, they are, uh, that don't match the qualifications that they've had in other places. Um, but they come from uh, cultures where you haven't had the interruption that Aboriginal people have had. And so they, 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 their starting line is further along than the starting line for Indigenous people. And so this is about bringing everybody up to the same starting line. Yeah, I would agree with that um, assessment. And, uh, you know, I think that we already uh, must recognise that we already do um, have special treatment, if you like, for Indigenous Australians. We have a Minister for Indigenous Australians. We have a, a portfolio for Indigenous Australians. There's a great deal of um, spending happens that's directly related to Indigenous Australians. Um, and uh, so if we already recognise that exists because of the disadvantage that we have talked about, the logical extension of that is if it's not working, why is it not working? And the evidence suggests, and it's why the voice is, um, is being asked for, is that perhaps if you ask the people who are affected by those special laws that you're making, you might get a better outcome. And what we have heard in our communities and as we've moved around the country, Julian came here, for example, to Tasmania for some information sessions. We've also been hearing from First Nations people about how they're culturally unique across the country. And that is important and it speaks to why um, we need to have those local and regional voices uh, to hear directly from um, people right across the country who are not the same as well. So I visited Flinders Island um, last week and was talking to the Flinders Island Aboriginal Association and their needs and what they might need to close the gaps in their community is going to be different to other communities um, across the country. Um, and that's important if we just apply this broad brush approach to policy making which we have been doing for a long time, recognising that we're making special laws um, about Aboriginal people, we're just going to keep getting the same results. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Let's take a quick break there and be back in a moment. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, 
A better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. Now, I wonder if I could go into a, a sort of a, the dimension of history here a bit, because it seems to me that that a lot of the debate has proceeded from a level of, of, of a very light understanding on the part of Australian voters as a cohort to uh, this na- nation's history and indeed even really to what the constitution says you know there are a lot of uh, misnomers uh, circulating around in this in this debate um uh, bridget to you first uh, do you think there's been a sort of a you know maria mentioned the term civics before i think do you think there has been a failure in um in our education system and our understanding of the nature of the constitution and the nature of the machinery and so forth that has led that is that is a vacuum into which a whole lot of misinformation has been able to sort of circulate uh, as a result of um, just Australians not really having a good understanding of the the true nature of Aboriginal dispossession and uh, the legal basis of terra nullius and all of those things. Perhaps in part. I mean, I think it is more a function, to be honest, of um, a particular type of political discourse that occupies the world now, the way that people consume information, um, the vast amount of information that's readily available, but a sort of decline in the ability of people to critically evaluate the information that's put before them as well. Um, You know, when Julian and I were at school, probably, um, you know, we were we were taught a lot of information, whereas I feel now there's so much information available and we're taught how to go and access information. But I think now there's such a ready available amount of information that really we need to be reframing that to to show people how to evaluate the information that they get. But I think that there's some wider issues too, just in, in terms of the history of um uh, indigenous um, history and politics, I guess, in the country as well. And my own state is a good example of that where, um, you know, probably when I was at school still, you know, and I, in fact I was talking to a local Indigenous man, Nick Cameron, here uh, last week and he was sharing the example of when he was at school, you know, they were basically, he was sitting in a class where they were teaching um, him that he didn't exist, that Tasmanian Aboriginal um, <laughs> people didn't exist, mm. you know. Um, and so that has that has changed, I guess. And I've noticed even in just, you know, the 10 or 15 years that I've been involved in public political life, just how the conversation has changed in Tasmania and um, the willingness of people to engage with um, Aboriginal culture and history uh, in a way that they never have um, before. I think that's a really positive thing. We're seeing dual naming um you know, here in Tasmania in, in increasing um, ways. Um, my own children were learning Palawakani as their language other than English 
at school, um, that they're really positive changes. And I think for me, um, it's been actually a great privilege through the course of this debate to have the opportunity to really um, understand more about that history and to hear those stories and connect uh, really deeply with the people whose history and stories that are that that is and um, you know I really have valued that I think that's been a, a huge privilege for me. Uh, Gillian? Look I, I agree with Bridget um, uh, I think about uh, my educational background um, when, when we were at school it was during the period of the 75th anniversary of the Gallipoli landings and I remember what a huge influence that the Anzac story mm. had on our conception of what it is to be Australian and I think that still has a has a great influence. But what I see as I go around my electorate is that there is a real hunger to know more about the culture of the Darug and Garingai people who are the traditional people of my community. What are their traditions, their customs? What was the nature of the black and white contact, both good and bad? Um, and I think younger people, um, those Indigenous stories and that sense of the Indigenous story being part of the broader Australian story uh, is going to be as significant and impactful for people uh, as the Anzac story was for my generation um, because people are just rediscovering it and uh, and learning about it and understanding it and see it as part of the shared Australian story. But I think um, a couple of other interesting observations from what Bridget made. Um, we have to remember most Australians don't know we have a constitution and those yeah. Australians that do know we have a constitution, most of them have never read it. Um, as a constitutional enthusiast, that makes me sad. But uh, as a, a as an ordinary Australian citizen, you actually have to think, well, it says something that's a bit good about our country because people only need to know about their constitutions when things have gone gone bad and, uh, you know, the constitution becomes a, a, a massive matter of debate. So I think that's partly reflective of the fact that generally we have a very successful constitutional system. But it, but it does leave us vulnerable to an argument that is put forward with respect by uh, your party, not by you, but but by your party, uh, and by it's been very successfully used uh, in this campaign and in the refer in the republic referendum. If you don't know, vote no. You know, a sort of arresting level of ignorance about these matters leaves us prone to that kind of. You know, basically, uh, you know, I think a dishonourable proposition, frankly. I, I couldn't agree more that it's dishonourable and it's, a, you know, a, a, it's disrespectful to the framers of the Constitution who gave us as the Australian citizenry the right to change the national rule book. In so many countries, it's parliamentarians like Bridget and I who get to make that decision. But we are fortunate and rare in this country that all of our citizens have, have that and all the framers wanted. and I'm quoted Edmund Barton in some of the speeches that I've made, was that we would, uh, you know, deliberate on this seriously and get informed. And so I, I, think it's a, I think it's a terrible argument. The one argument you haven't heard from the no case, though, is the argument you usually hear in referenda from the no case, which, which is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I think that's really interesting. It is. Because that's an acknowledgement that the system is broken and we know it's broken because of that terrible gap that means that an Indigenous boy is more likely to go to jail than university, that one in two Indigenous Australians living at or below the poverty line, and that uh, an Indigenous woman in my, in my state is 30 times more likely to be a victim of domestic violence than a non-Indigenous woman. The system is broken and we cannot um, let Saturday go past 
without the opportunity to do something to fix it. And that's directly related uh, to what you guys were both discussing around um, the importance of of history, right? Because it's not just um, this abstract thing that you read in books. It's actually like a set of practical outcomes that create positive and negative feedback loops for people that see them caught in cycles of disadvantage or or or, um, or, privilege. or, or privilege, right? And I mean, you know, you know, Julian mentioned um, Gallipoli. Um, which, you know, why is that event so resonant for Australians? Like it's because it's for a few reasons. One is that it's this evocative story around nationhood. Another is is that actually when you ask um, people from their families, like um, lots of stories come out about like how great granddad came back and he wasn't quite the same and it changed grandma's life and, you know, things might not have been as nice anymore or so many young people died, had a big effect on the economy, had a huge effect on public policy. It actually really changed the country and the structure. And so, and that's just one traumatic event in one generation that is affecting a country. And what you've got with Indigenous people is you've actually got a series of compounding really significant, serious, capital H history events happening to the same communities, you know, potentially one every generation, sometimes more than one. We're talking about, you know, um, diseases uh, wiping out communities. We're talking about massacres and murders. Then we're talking about moving people to literally the middle of nowhere and saying they have to stay there, talking about controlling their lives. Taking uh, their children. And taking their children, right, Uh, incarcerating them at higher rates than the average population because of a failure to understand those practical historical processes. And that's actually why listening is so vital to fixing this problem because these things have happened because there has been no listening. There's been plenty of talking, particularly from Indigenous people. They've they've actually never stopped advocating for themselves, but we have not been listening and we are, a lot of us are doing the same thing right now. We're not listening. Yeah, I think it's very well put. How do you, uh, I'd be interested in, in, in all three of your views on this question, how do you think media have performed through this um, through this period? Uh, perhaps to you first, uh, Bridget. Yeah, I think it's um, disappointing in some ways, but also I, I think symptomatic of the issue I was talking about earlier where um, we just have this huge availability of um you know, information um, as opposed to fact necessarily. And, um, you know, a media environment and a social media environment that no longer kind of necessarily interprets that either um, in a, you know, in a factual way, um, there's this tendency to kind of um, see just both siding um, mm. without um commentary as being fair or unbiased. I don't actually believe that that is um, true. I think we've seen um, naked misinformation and outright lies um, at times go unchallenged um, in the name of sort of presenting both sides. Um, I don't think that that's um, something that we should um, celebrate. And, you know, I think it is actually uh, a bit of a threat to democracy more broadly. You know, we have seen it through the course of this debate, but I think we see it um, 
more widely as well. And and, and I've heard Julian speak um, very eloquently previously around that sort of um, Trumpian politics, for example. And um, it's the same situation, I think, that we see where you just have um, heaps of information, opinion, essentially presented as um, as fact and, and going just unchallenged in the ether um, and being shared and um, it's like a runaway train then, I think. I'm seeing this in my community too. I mean, I think Bridget um, put it really well. There's too much information. I, I was door knocking on Sunday and I came upon a man he said, I've got so much information. It's not that I, I can't make an informed choice. I'm just bamboozled. And uh, and I think that's been the problem is people being able to find reliable sources to see real engagement in the issues, wanting to know, because we, we, we've got to this period where when, when we were growing up, you know, uh, in our family, we got the, uh, the, the Herald and the Daily Telegraph uh, um, in the morning, we watched the Channel 9 news and the Channel 2 news in, in, in the evening. Um, that was how, how we consumed and pretty much other families that uh, grew up in and around me did, simil- did similarly. Now just the news is for everywhere. There are fewer and fewer people paying any attention to the general news mm. and there are more and more people, you know, and, and less and less trust in the general news and more and more people just believing rubbish that they read on the internet. I mean, I... I've had uh, two different people say to me that there's actually a second constitution, that there's the Constitution of Australia Proprietary Limited, and that actually controls the constitution. I've had Indigenous people say that. Well, there's a news break for us. This is just a bizarre (laughs) conspiracy, but people believe it because the the ability to actually deal with the information um, is difficult. And I think that there's a sort of a general lack of trust in, uh, in the media that this is kind of... Um, has forced or has has seen people choose to go to other sources, but those sources are you know hugely unreliable as well. Yeah, I mean Maria, between that and algorithms that are essentially curating news to people, news feeds to people, so that they are you know seeing sort of spectacular takes on things, um, and just that whole sort of um, sort of sickening pastiche of information now where where facts are competing with non-facts but, but without any uh, necessarily you know sort of advantage the advantage of being true for example it's just it, it everything's weighted the same you know this is sort of relativist pastiche as I say yeah yeah I mean and you know and part of it is is around the problem of polarization which we've we've kind of alluded to right um and and that sort of reflects i mean like i just wonder if bob hawke could be prime minister today with his message of consensus like what would a consensus look like in this in this country you know because people are increasingly uh, kind of wanting their sort of feelings or opinions affirmed, and and that that has definitely had an effect on on mainstream and and legacy media. And even though people might not always be consuming those media directly, it does have an impact on the rest of the media sort of ecosystem. And and the and the fact that a, a lot of journalists in this debate have really been, I suppose, reluctant to really call out questionable information to let it sort of stand. Or, or to persist in doing so, which I think is an important point yes. here. I mean, I think most journalists, if you made that criticism of them, would be able to defend themselves. They would be able to cite the interview they did where they challenged it. But it's it, it needs to be challenged every time it's said, and that might not be much fun, but 
if people are, if if campaigners uh, for the no case, for example, are making things up or or, or uh, you know putting forward massive exaggerations, joining conflating things together that have no relationship, then that needs to be called out, and it needs to be called out every time it's said. Not yeah. not just once, and I think it's actually a twofold problem for the for for the average um, journalist. Like one is it requires actually a, a knowledge of a lot of policy detail, detail about the constitution, which you know potentially a journalist doesn't have. That 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 could be one problem. Um, and, yeah, it's and, a very good very good point, and it is a problem. Yeah, and I mean, like to be blunt, journalists are kind of paid to know this stuff, and yes. it's not like we didn't know this referendum was coming. Yeah, and, and the second is like you know it's the elephant in the room. Um, we don't really have very sophisticated language to kind of talk about race. Um, you know, we talk a lot about ethnicity. That is actually a product of, of decades long of policy decisions, and and that was done to sort of to take the kind of eugenicist capital R race racism out of public policy mm. but it has meant that we don't always have um you know nece- the necessary tools to kind of discuss this question in a in a way that hasn't kind of descended into the conversation that we're having now and i can imagine that there are probably many journalists out there who who actually might have the facts or might have the skills and the expertise but they are afraid of engaging in this conversation around race and i think the the, the um, example of the Marcia Langton incident that happened about three weeks ago was a really good example about that and lots of people really tiptoed around the idea of um you know really belling the cat on this issue of racism and 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 it was such a strange moment where more people seem to be in the in, in mainstream media upset about accusations of racism than actually kind of than the reckoning practice of racism with what Lang- Langton was was trying to yeah. highlight. And indeed, when the corrections came, they came as in Marcia Langton denies slurring no voters as distinct from. Uh, the the tape recording shows she didn't slur no voters. You know that was actually what the, yeah, what she, the headline she made should have been. Much more nuanced argument. Yeah, and you know. and as Bridget says, nuance hasn't been really uh, able to sort of struggle its way to the front of the peloton in this public discourse. I think that's part of the issue too. Is that the yes argument is necessarily nuanced? Um, yes, and um, and no doesn't have to be. I guess is the bottom. Yeah, no line. doesn't even have to be internally consistent. And this is one of the things that I've found really asymmetric about this contest. That no could have ten different arguments, which all contradict each other, which all can't be true together, but. They all have had some salience out there in in, in convincing people. We, we don't know. We shouldn't prejudge the result here. We're a few days from the vote. Um, but what we can say is that the yes case has softened very significantly since the the commencement, at least by, by way of measures of public opinion. And uh, as you say, Bridget, um, nuance uh, or, or complicated arguments, uh, arguments about principle. And the other thing you'd probably have to agree is that the yes case has been determinedly positive and that's actually uh, been uh, tactically a limitation on its ability to to really get down in the gutter with some of these arguments. Well, I think it's necessary because it is also, um, whilst it's nuanced, it's also, it's, um, it is 
hopeful. Yeah. You know, and I think um, it's hopeful for a better future. There's there's not a way to position it negatively um, in that respect, I guess. And I, I think part of the work that Julian and I have been doing is to try and draw out some of those arguments too when you're talking to people um, and just having one conversation after another conversation to people about um, – the consistency in those arguments, you know, yes, has been very consistent in its messaging because it is what it is. Um, the arguments on the no side of you, as you've said, have been um, lacking in consistency. They are incompatible with each other. And some of the conversations I'm having with people now is have a think about some of those arguments that have been made and what's the extension of those arguments, you know, which we talked about earlier around, um, you know, um, well, we're all equal. Well, we're demonstrably not all <laughs> equal. Um where some people um, will get special treatment. Well, if you extend that argument, as we've said, some people are already getting special treatment. Are you saying that you don't think that they ought to get special treatment? Like where's the logical extension Mm. of these sorts of um, arguments? And those are some of the conversations that, you know, certainly I have been having as, you know, if you can have those one-on-one conversations um, with people and you can point to the inconsistencies in those arguments, then people start to see that really what you are being asked to decide is to give uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, that symbolic recognition in the constitution and the practical um, advisory committee enshrined in the constitution to uh, ensure that we are able to um, address the disadvantage that we all acknowledge exists. Julian, can I ask you um, the uh, about the um, your colleague Andrew Bragg, um, who's also a uh, a yes voter, uh, and uh, he has made criticisms about what he says is the sort of failure to. Uh, Build a, a stronger central centre ground consensus ahead of this vote. In in and I suppose he's talking about here really in a parliamentary sense. Um, do you think there's validity to that uh, to that proposition? I mean, was 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 the government somewhat naive in thinking that the opposition was going to come on board, or did it just think that it was going to be able to defy history and get this question up without bipartisanship? All of my participation in this debate has been focused on trying to get as many yes votes as possible uh, for for this proposition. And um, I think that there were definitely moments over the course of 2022 and early 2023 where um, you know, if things had been handled a bit differently, there would have been uh, more parliament, parliamentary support for uh, uh, for for the yes case. I mean, even uh, I even moved amendments in the House of Representatives, uh, not because I had issues with the proposition in a technical sense, but because I knew there were some stumbling blocks for some colleagues, and more importantly for some voters in relation to the question. But I think, um, you know, we are where we are, and. Um, what gives me hope, and it's what I always try to bring people back to, is the word 
on the uh, in the constitution because that's actually the only thing that's going to change. It's uh, it's not all the distractions that the no cases suggested, like the WA heritage laws or welcomes to country or a chance to vote against the UN or whatever it is that the conspiracy <laughs> theorists are saying. That's what that's what some of the anti-vax conspiracy theorists are saying on my pre-polls. I know I've seen um, some of it, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean this is this is effectively what this is all a rerun of for them. This is not just a, a, a chance to vote against things you don't like in the country. There's actually a, a proposition on the table. That's the only thing that we're looking at. It's a proposition that completes our constitution by recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in a way they've asked to be recognised and gives us a new tool in the public policy-making armour to try and address those uh, uh, major gaps that we have in outcomes between Indigenous people and the rest of us. That's all this is about. And, uh, you know, I've described the no cases approach to this like a Jackson Pollock painting. You know, Jackson Pollock famously of blue poles, like the splat of the canvas with paint. And all they've done here is gone splat Western Australian heritage laws, splat welcome to country, splat um, dot painting, splat, you know, um, treaty, splat reparation, splat, 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 splat. Um, We've got to get back to, to what this is actually about, which is about that one new section of the Constitution, fewer than 100 words, but something that I think will make a big difference. And I think that's an important um, point as well, because people will say, well, it's it's not it's not this that's going to lead to all this, that and the other thing. It's not. It can't. It's there in black and white. But also some of those things can 100% be done irrespective of the voice or not. So people, if, if that's their framing, they're going to be bitterly disappointed regardless when they realise that there's already treaty negotiations going on in several states now across the country. The government could change the date of Australia Day if it wanted to. None of these things are predicated on um, the success or failure of this referendum. It's not what you're being asked and there's no this will lead to that. This will do exactly what it says on the box, nothing exactly. more, nothing and less. Exactly, and there are no special rights. I mean, it is a it is an advisory voice that would be protected in the constitution. Simple as that. Mm. Uh, and in fact, I would have preferred the word protected than enshrined all the way through, just because I think it has a, a stronger narrative uh, um, uh, quality to it. It actually explains that the point about it is that it is um, something that has been vulnerable in the past to the vicissitudes of electoral politics. This is what of... happens when you get too many lawyers involved, Mark. They <laughs> use legal language rather than simple language that Australians understand. Yes, exactly. Um, look, thanks so much for both of you to both of you for being on. It's been really terrific having this discussion. Uh, I hope that there is. I hope it's been useful for you if you're listening uh, to just get uh, more information on this. Uh, it's really important. It is a very profoundly important national moment, and it doesn't come up very often. Referendums are relatively rare. If you're younger than 42 in this country you will never have voted in one that's uh that, that that tells you something right there and rarer still are ones that actually pass uh and indeed history making it would be for one to pass without uh bipartisan support of both parties so um there are uh, there's some big questions the country faces people are already voting as you said maria mm -hmm, that's uh, right you've been out there and um uh, and and thanks to uh, uh, Julie and Lisa and to Bridget Archer. It's been really terrific having you on. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. Uh, we'll be uh, perhaps a different country when we speak to you next week. Um, um, and the topic to be advised, because I haven't even thought that far, to be honest. Um, 
But uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, our email is democracysausage at anu.edu.au. So um, thank you to all. Uh, I should say thanks to Jack Fox and to Angus Blackman because uh, I, I really do this. I really get around to saying thank you to them, but they provide such brilliant support, Angus Blackman being the EP of Democracy Sausage. We should always thank him because uh, the efforts that they put in make this thing happen and uh, they are uh, expert efforts at that. There'd be no really pod without them. There would be no pod without them. That's it. Bye for now. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.